if you design for people, you're not solving problems. I reverse design everything. That means I don't focus on problems. I don't have problems. I don't fix anything. I design for humans. And in that effort, you realize how much is problems fixing out there and completely missing the point because we're not a problem to be fixed. Welcome to SheEO.World, a podcast about redesigning the world. I'm your host, Vicki Saunders. In each episode, you'll hear from SheEO Venture founders, women who are working on the world's to-do list. These innovative business leaders are solving some of the major challenges of our times. Sit back and prepare to be inspired. My name is B. Alink, and I am the inventor of the Alinker. The Alinker is a three-wheeled walking bike that changes lives. Amazing. So I am here with B. Alink, Barbara Alink on LinkedIn and other places, and better known as B in our amazing uh, CEO World Network. Welcome, B. It's great to have you here. It's fantastic to be here. I'm so excited, Vicky. We met in, I think, 2015 in Vancouver, and you came into this event that we were hosting in Vancouver, and you rolled in on this unbelievably cool yellow bike. And I just remember looking at it the first time and going, what? is that there was just Mm. something electric about it it's an amazing invention you call it a vehicle for social change which i think is really brilliant tell us a little bit about the story behind how you got to inventing this well it started with the comment of my mom and it's always a bit tricky to to say that because then people instantly have moms and parents and elderly people in their mind so i sometimes try to stay away from that but it did start with a very cool sentence she and I were walking over the market and watching some elderly people watching of uh, using uh, scooters and rollators and that stuff. And then out of the blue, my mom being a bit of a <laughs> stubborn Dutch woman, <laughs> out of the blue, she said, over my dead body will I ever use one of those things. And what it did to me, it's not that she is necessarily the user. I mean, she is using it now, but What it did to me is it made me realize that medical devices generally are designed as a technical solution for a body with a problem. And we treat, and our whole medical system is based on a body with a problem that needs to be fixed. In our whole medical system, we lose our humanity because we're a little bit more than just a body with a problem. I am an active person, and whether I miss a leg or have MS, make me a different person. So why am I a judge on what my body has or hasn't? And of course, that stretches way further than abilities or disabilities. It goes to skin color, to gender identities and all that kind of stuff. So it made me aware that mobility devices emphasize the disability and make it even bigger that there's a physical thing going on that is different than mainstream, whatever mainstream is. And that just didn't make any sense to me. Like if, if it's awkward to have a disability already because it, that's more to manage as a logistical thing, then it's really not fair to have something that emphasizes that. So it creates a social divide between people with and without disabilities. Uh, that, that's just the silliest thing ever. So then right. I set out to make something so cool that people would love to use it and not like over my dead body that it would overcome the discomfort that other people have with a disability. It's amazing. So this is like this empathetic design that we're hearing about more and more, right? People are now actually articulating what that is. This is an amazing thing to me because you talk about this concept of reverse design. 
Uh, And so I'm imagining you're sitting there and someone gives you this insight that just hits you like a lightning bolt, which happens with lots of founders, right? Someone asks a question and it just unlocks something in you and you're like, oh my God. So how do you even go about redesigning and thinking about a device that is designed for people to live the way that they want to live? Where did it start for you? Like, how'd you get going? Well, where it started is that I wanted to create something cool for who we are. We are active people that like to be engaged. To be engaged is crucial for how we are as human humans amongst each other. It needed to be something that allows you to be out there and about and be engaged in life because isolation is the biggest disease and is more debilitating than the physical things that you might um, experience. That was the, 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 the whole premise. It needed to be really cool to use and, and, and really allow you to to be out there and active. And then, of course, there's the whole process of um, looking at what's there. For example, a walker, you see people hunched over because I think they need to lean off their weight. So you need to solve the weight. So maybe you need to sit on a seat. And then in order to have full circulation, maybe your legs should be upright so that you can walk. So you sit on a seat. So some kind of overarching thing with a seating assembly, you need to make it stable at least one added wheel so it's stable and then two in the back you would kick into that so maybe the wheel should be in the front and one in the back and yeah, how do you solve the steering so, so very quickly it became an overarching thing with two wheels in the front and one in the back with a seating assembly on top of it that was within an hour that I figured out like that's sort of the premise of what I need to do because it just made sense you got no pressure okay. on your legs you're at eye level and it already looked cool yeah okay and then so it was done right Easy peasy. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No problem whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) So how many prototypes, like how did you start? Tell us a little bit about that process. So first I made a little, uh, I started cutting little pieces of cardboard and tying that together with tape and just to figure, fiddle around with, with some shapes and some stuff and cutting out a little human body and putting that on it and how that would work. And then I, Uh, started bending. I've got pictures of all those things, and yeah. that's all the prototypes. The whole thing is there. I yeah. make drawings. Of course, I'm I'm a woodworker. I made the first prototypes in wood, yeah. and then I found a guy in Vancouver where I lived at that time. Oh, I lived in Richmond, but I lived close to Vancouver. I needed to have the conceptual prototypes, but yeah. in real life, real size, so we can actually try them. So I needed somebody who can weld stuff because I can do a lot, but I cannot weld. I wish I could, but I just don't have the time. So I made them in wood. And then I went to this guy who makes really cool stuff and he can weld aluminum and we started messing about. And in the beginning, I remember his face like, oh my God, what the fuck is this? This woman comes up with that, well, some wooden shit. And then then started messing with me. He said, oh yeah, you're expecting me to translate this into the, what are you thinking, this wood? And I said, I'm paying you to make the prototype. Stop whining, start making it. So we developed this whole relationship with each other, which was really fun. And then he was like, why don't you just make that straight? That's cheaper. And then I was like, I don't want it straight because it has to be fucking cool. So what the hell? So the first one was sort of functional and taught me a lot already. And then the second one, but it wasn't, it was still straight. And I was like, nah, it doesn't look, it has to be cool. So the second prototype, he went out of his way to facilitate me to make it really cool. And he made it so ridiculous see, this is what you get when you want to make it cool. And it was so ridiculous. I was like, damn, we need to curse. So, yeah. and then we had seven prototypes together and we had a lot of, a lot of fun actually doing it. 
I had a job with a glass studio in, uh, in Vancouver doing a project in Doha. I produced and quality controlled the glass for the new airport in Doha, which allowed me, because the time difference was then, to come early, very early in the office and then piss off again after one o'clock or something. And then I went to the studio with Toby, Toby Cycle Works in Vancouver, super yeah. cool guy, and then started messing around with the prototypes. You sort of had a job to kind of bootstrap you through figuring out how to get this prototype going. Okay, so seven prototypes with Toby, and then what? Four prototypes with Toby, and then my money ran out, but it was, it was about $40,000 further in or something, because prototyping just cost a lot of time and money. I did some meetups where I met Fia Fia, somebody who was interested in investing. I was like, investing, how does that work? I didn't even know what a share was, literally. I had no idea. And then was like, yeah, but I need investment. So how does that work? So Alan, this first guy, somehow saw something in me. And he reflected on that a while ago. But he saw something and he was like, Barbara, I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to get some associates and I'm, I'll mentor you through how you raise money and what you do in your paperwork and what a share is. And he started working with me and he was incredible. Like throughout the years, there's this dude who was 72, I think, when I met him. And so now he's 79 or something, and he's always there. He's always there, just quietly. He's there when I need him, and then I call him. He's like, Alan, like, what? And then yeah. he talks me through stuff. And a while ago, I had a call with him, and he said, Barbara, literally, from everything what you've done in the last seven years, I don't think you've done anything by the books. <laughs> 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 Which is probably the biggest compliment of a guy who stuck with me as an investor absolutely over years but never tried to change me he yeah. is one of those angels i mean we talk about we talk about asian investors but he's a true angel because he just showed up and did not try to change me he said i invest in you because i see something i believe in you i write off the money and here i am amazing absolutely amazing yes that's so cool so you had some capital to kind of get it moving when did it start to come to market what happened after that well, with that money, I could make more prototypes and I started um, writing the patents and I thought after four prototypes, I was really far and I started making a website. And <laughs> when you look back, you see all those things. Wow. Okay. Um, I had to learn a lot. So then seven prototypes in, I knew that the concept was proven and I was far enough ahead that I now needed to engineer it. And then through an old friend in the Netherlands, the husband of my old biology teacher, introduced me to this guy in the Netherlands who's making adaptive bikes and does engineering. He's a bike manufacturer for weird bikes, all sorts of adaptive stuff and anything that is out of the normal he makes. And then he introduced me to his partner in Taiwan, a long-standing relationship of manufacturing quality control and all that stuff for 30 years. And with Willy Nyland, I made another seven pre-production prototypes, like all the engineering, making sure that what you do is actually affordable uh, when you, once you put it through production. So then you get the, the engineering affordability, um, all that stuff. Like if you have to make all custom parts, which is the case in the Alenker, it's going to be expensive. So how can we reduce cost, keep the quality and engineer it such that it's a very comfortable an easy to use thing. That was quite the challenge. And there's so yeah. total 14 prototypes, but hundreds of iterations. Every little bolt, screw, whatever, has had days of discussions and right. testing and trying and unbelievable. Yeah. When I hear this, it, it makes me laugh a little bit to think about how much we don't know when we start off on our journeys. 
right? Like, oh yeah, I'm just going to solve that thing. And you get going and then deeper and deeper. And the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And it's just a crazy struggle, right? Yeah. With that first prototype, for example, I got a guy who was 81 or something on it at that time. There was not even a saddle on it. There was just a little multiplex plank. So it must have crushed his balls at least. Um, but he got on it and something happened in his face he flipped around with his cap and he started running and he said i haven't run in 20 years oh my god amazing and i was like holy shit what and so every prototype i always tested it with people and the responses that i got back it's not about what i can do or what i should do or start a business it was like if this is what it could do to people then there's no other option than to do this and see it through and bring it to market because then if you design for people you're not solving problems getting back to that reverse design that you just already said i reverse design everything that means i don't focus on problems i don't have problems i don't fix anything i design for humans and in that effort you realize how much is problems fixing out there and completely missing the point because we're not a problem to be fixed right yeah absolutely so you have someone playing with it and working on it and you start to see how they're using it. Was there a lot of interaction in the earlier days with quote unquote customers or pre-customers to figure that out? Completely. A lot. Yeah. In Toby's workshop, everybody who walked in had to try it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everybody who wanted on the street or whatever, and it's like, oh, that's cool. It's like, want to try it? Try it. See what you think. And then, you know. And watch all- them and see what they did. And yeah. And then. People started referring to, oh, my brother's got a, uh, he's an amputee. And then somebody said, oh, my father has MS or whatever. And then all those things started popping up. And I was like, oh, if everybody who got on the linker knows about somebody who they think this could work for, then wow. A linker is not made for a segment. It's not for MS. It's not for an amputee. It's for how we want to stay active. It's in our mind. And then we happen to have a, a body with certain things. So there's not really a segment that we can focus on, I learned, because active people who happen to have a little bit more logistics to manage than other people, they're not a segment in our market because we're not right. solving a problem. Yeah, and that's a, it's a really different thing, right? When I first met you, I heard the story about your mom, then I, I would refer to, to it as it's a rethinking of the walker in the wheelchair. I would say that a lot. In fact, I do still do sometimes. And then I can imagine you chastising me for saying that because <laughs> that's not really right. I mean, that was maybe where the, it's the, the initial sort of insight was, but mm-hmm. then it was, you know, what kind of mobility challenges do people have and how do they want to live and how can this be used just really very, very broadly. I mean, it's not unlike with CEO, people are like, what's a traditional or a typical activator? I'm like, they're all ages, all stages. They come for all different reasons. And so you don't want to put it in a box. Of, right. It's for this kind of person, right? I imagine it's still evolving. I mean, you've talked about now you're doing this for different audiences, for kids and for yep. others. So as you get out in market, you start to see more and more what the opportunities are for the device. Well, where people don't have something that they can relate to. So the people who find us, they're generally people that sit at home desperately Googling for something cooler than what they can find in the shop. Something that can keep them active. I mean, if you say that half the wheelchair users can still use their legs, but there's nothing designed for them to be at eye level and to keep their legs active, you say that three times, it becomes really weird. It's insane. How's that even possible? 50% of people in wheelchairs can still move their legs, but as soon as they go into it, then they start to deteriorate because they're not moving. Yeah. 
And so everybody who I talked to in the last years with MS, for example, MS is the highest prevalence of MS is in Canada. So it's, it's a large group of people that we have on the linkers and it seems to work for them well. They all have the same experience that doctors say is like, just get used to the wheelchair over time and here is your medication because at least nothing will happen to you. This is the misconstrued reality of the medical world. Get into a wheelchair, at least nothing will happen to you. Something will happen to you because you will lose the rest of your mobility if you can't practice your legs. But there is something like at least you can't fall. So it's all... It's all risk, risk mitigation. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. But the risk mitigation is on the body with the problem. It's yeah. not on how we want to live and, and what actually makes sense. So we deactivate the brain by sitting the whole day as where the brain wants to work. And if you activate the brain, the brain can actually manage a lot more. And that means less medication and more that the brain can do. Well, that doesn't make money. So slowly by slowly, I started realizing that everything that we do with the linker is not feeding into the money-making system of the current healthcare system, which I always call the sick care system because it kicks in once we're sick and is only reactive. Right. And then it's focused on medication. Talk to us about a story or two from your network of people who were not active and then somehow found you and got in a linker. And then what are the results? Like what's happening as people start to get active again? My favorite story and my longest standing friendship in the linker is Joe. He was the very first linker user in the US. He was typically one of those guys. He was, I think, 58 or something when he, or 61, I don't know, somewhere around 60 when he contacted me. And he said, I found this thing online. This is it. Is it real? And I was like, is it real? What do you mean? And so we got on Skype and Denise as well, his wife. And he said, well, I'm finding all this cool stuff that is potentially fantastic for me online and nothing makes it to market. And I kind of knew why it doesn't yeah. go to market because it's so damn hard to bring something to market. It really is. And he said, is this real? I said, well, in the last pre-production prototype and it will get to market, but it's not yet there. He said, where are you now? I said, well, I'm actually in the Netherlands right now to test this thing out. To, like if you got something completely new that you want to test, <laughs> you want to do that in the Netherlands, not because yeah, they're so gentle to new things, but if you make it in the Netherlands with a new product, you'll make it anywhere. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, because they're so stubborn and hard to change their ways, I guess. I was in the Netherlands and he said, I'll fly to the Netherlands. I was like, nah, no, because there's no guarantee it will work for you. He had 20 years MS, cannot walk. I mean, with crutches, he does a few meters, but then he gets exhausted and his wrists are wrecked and he's got the risk of falling all the time. So his anxiety level goes up a lot. And I said, you're not coming here because there's no guarantee that it works and it's not even ready yet. <laughs> he cannot come. And there was no stopping him. It was so funny. He was like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to, no, you're not. He was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then a few days later, he was there and he met us and he got on the linker and did three and a half kilometers through the Vondel Park. Oh my God. You can imagine that there's no way that he is not going to go with that prototype back to the US because he <laughs> got like, his life back. Right? He had his, I was like, shit, okay, yeah. well, you know, wow. clearly I can't tell you anything. So he goes from being a guy who sits at home desperately Googling for something that could help him to now, years later, four years in the linker, being a shareholder in a company because he loves what he said. I want to be part of this family and this is not about money. This is about 
what we can do to, to create a better society because it is a vehicle for social change. It's so much more than just a bike because now we focus on people in isolation and being acknowledged and all that stuff. The essentials in our life, right? Just being acknowledged and seen and heard. So now that Denise and I talked, like we often talk, but last week or something I had her on the phone and she said, um, Joe just went with his linker in the car from New Jersey to Florida to visit family because he can. Oh my gosh. He figured out a way to lean against with his back against the car, fold up the linker, flip it in the back of the car, lean back against the car to go to the driver's seat drives. Oh my gosh. In an adjusted car, obviously. But I mean, he drives independently to Florida to visit family. Oh my God. That's one of my favorite stories. And he always wanted to go to the Museum of Modern Art, for example. So uh, when I was visiting them, he said, B, do you want to go to? He said, yeah, sure. So we went to MoMA in New York. Four hours. I was exhausted. He was not. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, that's amazing. Incredible. That kind of stuff is just... And it's one of my favorite parts from the video that you have where you have him and his wife, Denise, for the first time walking together and they're holding hands. And they hadn't done that for what she said, 20 years or something. So there they were at eye height, holding hands, looking at things in the museum. Like how beautiful. Yeah. Changes lives. It's not just Joe lives with MS. Denise also lives yeah, with Yeah, exactly. Right? It's the whole family. That's yeah. the whole family around it, the whole environment. So, yeah. So, okay, let's talk about going to market because one of the things I love about your approach is you're doing this in a very different way, similar to how we're doing things differently at CEO. And I, you talked about the sick care system slash healthcare system. So why not go and distribute through traditional medical channels? What's the problem with doing that? <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> I know, small question. What's wrong yeah. with the medical system? Yeah, well, first of all, I have nothing against a sick care system because people do get sick and they need a sick care system. So it's very good that we have sick care, though you can question where the focus lies. And I do believe at the moment we have a sick care system that mostly focuses on medicating I have nothing against medication, but I do have something against medication when that's the first go-to. Before we ask, how much do you move, what do you eat, and what does your poo look like, so to speak. Yeah. We're a little bit lost, I feel, with a food industry that just pumps a lot of processed food and sugar into us. Then we get sick, and then we want a sick care system to create a solution, a, a cure. So everything is focused on raising funds for the cure is where it's not a disease that can be cured with the pill. So the sick care system, I want to leave that for what it is because we're, if we're focused on we're active beings and we want to stay active regardless of mobility challenges, we're not in the sick care world yet. Well, that UCD linker might have medication and often have. What we're seeing is that once people get on the linker and are more socially active, fly with the linker to places that they couldn't fly anymore, visit family, generally become happier, generally start eating differently because when you eat, well, when you're happier, you, you, you change your eating patterns often and they can reduce certain medication. They're not on antidepressants anymore. They're reducing medication that they needed before. We're not in the sick care system. And medical devices, if you want to get them back from the medical system right now, well, first of all, there's the margin problem. I had one of the big medical providers, medical device providers in Canada be <laughs> saying to me, like, we're mad that we can't, we want to sell the linker for you, but we can't. 
and you're underselling us. I was like, under like I'm a private company. Right. <laughs> how, how can I be underselling you? It's quite interesting. Yeah. It's my thing, and I'm selling it privately. And they said, well, if we want to sell this, it has to sell for five and a half, six thousand dollars in Canada. Now we're selling for two and a half thousand, twenty-four eighty, no taxes. So it would have to be at least, if not more, than two times as much. And I was like, why is that? Because I learned that that is the margins that they take off in order to for it to be a medical device and class one medical device. It goes through all those procedures. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got uh, certified uh, distributors, so you can't be your own distributor anymore. All that stuff costs a lot of money. And it's not to the benefit of the people that use those things. A Tylite wheelchair, for example, is four and a half thousand dollars. They don't cost four and a half thousand dollars. Like if that was a private company, they could probably sell it for two and a half thousand, same as the link. So there's all kinds of margins in the supply chain for everybody taking their cut. Is that's the biggest barrier to selling them through distributors? That's, that's one barrier. If you've ever tried to go to to need a wheelchair, for example, and then you go to one of those providers and say, like, I want a wheelchair. It's not a kind process. You feel like you're holding up your hand, that you're asking something you shouldn't be asking for. You actually barely, rarely get the thing that you really want. A cool wheelchair, for example, you get the one that's cheaper or whatever. So there's the complaints that I had from people, what it takes and how you feel when you try to get your money back for one of those things that you actually need. It's, it's, really, it's really not a nice system. It's really not nice. It's not facilitating to the user. Again, it's facilitating the system itself. I mean, that's really interesting because we haven't talked about this before, but so if if that's the system, right? So you're talking to someone who's not necessarily treating you like a human or they are, but it's, it's just not the way that you would like to see it running your organization. I've seen you many, many times uh, sitting in my living room or uh, sitting on planes or in airports, answering all of these emails and talking to people and getting on a phone with someone to listen to their story about the challenge they faced. And so there's a very high touch customer service going on right now. Why is that important to you? Well, first of all, I don't call it customer service. I call it um, accessible. And I think we should be accessible because people have been living at the receiving end of a sick care system that was not designed for their well-being. And the thing that happens most is that people feel isolated. They're not listened to. They get mad because they feel that they're walking into walls trying to get the right treatment. I mean, the stories of the women, mostly, because I do think the medical system also is quite sexist, the stories of women trying to get a diagnosis for MS sometimes takes years because they're like, oh, well, you know, you're just a single mom and you're tired and da 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 It is horrific to live at the receiving end of a sick care system that is not designed for our wellness. Mm-hmm. So showing up for people, listening, less, just listening sometimes and saying mm-hmm. like, I get it. I totally get it. And you must be really mad because, or whatever. And what do we do with that? I don't want to hang in the madness. I don't want to hang in the complaints. I don't want right. to. And I get it that people are in that space. And so here I am, somebody who makes something that people just see and get hope. It's not for everybody. So first of all, I need to mitigate that because yeah. it, it, it really isn't for everybody. And so many people I engage with that never get on an linker, but they feel seen and hurt because that's essential. We need to just show up for each other. And I always do because I can. 
That's incredibly it's, powerful. I feel like I do the same thing with entrepreneurs, which is yes, I listen to them going through the challenges they're facing, go, yep, I hear you. It's hard. It's just the line for humanity, isn't it? That we all need to do in our communities is just show up for each other, listen to each other, hear each other's pain. You just have no idea what's behind or under the surface with everybody. Right. So you are in the world right now. This is so exciting. So you're out in other communities, in other markets. You're not just in Canada. How many countries are you in and how did that kind of happen? Yes. So we're in Canada and the US and in the Netherlands, in the UK, in New Zealand and in Australia at the moment. And of course, since Selma Blair posted herself on the Alinker, she found the Alinker, changed her life. And she's like, this thing needs to be everywhere. And if I can help you be a voice to bring it out to market to the, so that people can see it, I will do that. Since Selma has been involved, I'm getting responses from all over the world. Like, we'd like to do the distribution here, there, many countries. <laughs> it's amazing. And just to be clear, so if people don't know who Selma Blair is, she's an actress uh, from Hollywood, and she went to the Oscars this year with a cane and announced that she'd been diagnosed with MS, which, you know, to your point, had taken a long time to get diagnosed, right? Again, the, the power of someone taking a picture and putting it up on Instagram when they have hundreds of thousands of followers and starting to raise the awareness around this and to show that, it, you know, someone with MS is on something that gives them joy. Like some of her posts are unbelievable, right? Where she's like, wee, you know, as she goes <laughs> off on it. Uh, it's like quite awesome to see that. And I mean, that actually kind of reminds me, you and I were walking through Times Square mm -hmm. a couple years ago, and there was this mm. woman who was being pushed in a wheelchair by her parents. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And I'm not really attuned to watching this, but you are, right? Because you're on it. You're out there constantly noticing like who's taking a look at this. And so when you that was happening, I was actually watching you. You were, oh, you were? <laughs> yeah. she, remember, she kind of tweaked this young girl. You stopped immediately and said, would you like to try it? And I'll never forget it because her parents were like, oh, no, no, no. And she was off the wheelchair before they could even stop her Yes. and on the bike. And then she started to move. And it was just her face was just lit up in the most exquisite way. And I thought, wow, like, what is the feeling you have when you realize that's the kind of joy that you're providing to people? Like, it's amazing to me to watch. Yeah, it, it always gets me when I see it. And at the same time, that should be so normal. Totally. I know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, there, it, it's a weird feeling to be the one who made this thing. At the same time, I know it's not my thing. There right. were so many angels and people necessary to bring it to where it is now. And it is only that to where it is now because I listened to all those people who were willing to try it during prototyping and I listened yeah. and I implemented what I saw uh, or what I heard. So it's not yeah. my thing. It's, it's really not. I'm the one who's there to put it together and to do this, but it's not my thing. Like people sometimes say like, oh, it's your baby. It's like, no, no, it's not my baby. It's not my baby. It's not. It comes through me. I'm the one who's, who needs to do it, apparently, but it's not my thing. I mean, that's a great segue to what I wanted to talk about at some point during our conversation today, which is the need for us to do this together and to be together in community, especially as you're bringing forth new models and new mindsets and new products and services to the world uh, mm -hmm. at a time when we deeply need to redesign things. So can you tell just a little bit around your experience with riding into this community on your linker <laughs> of CEO and the activators who have sort of come around to help you? Like what, what has been the impact of being part of this community? Well, I'll give you a little bit of an overview of where I was when I lived in Richmond and was trying to do this 
I always see the Alinker as a mindset thing. So not many people are early adopters. And before the early adopters, you have the inventors. Not many people really have an inventive mind. When you try to do something before you have proof and you're trying to build it and you're trying to get investors to invest in you when you still don't have anything, just an idea of the business and how you do business is so hard. Topple that up with menopause and <laughs> you know all that kind of good stuff. Bring it on, yeah. I was not in a good space. I was on antidepressants. I did not want to wake up very often the next day. I was really not in a good space. And I, for some reason, I did not stop doing what I was doing. Because in retrospect, I always say like, the Elinker nearly cost me my life. And at the same time, it saved my life. Mm -hmm. Because it kept me going. In that kind of state, I remember that I was, I, was, I was sleeping in my walk-in closet in a tiny little apartment in, well, apartment is a big word, but a tiny little space in Richmond. I was sleeping in my walk-in closet so that the, what was supposed to be the bedroom was now my working space uh, where I made prototypes and all that stuff. And I was in my bed on my birthday by myself. And then I got your phone, phone call. That was on a Sunday or something. And you, mm-hmm. you told me you've become one of the top five companies. I remember thinking and feeling, and I can still feel it, now everything is going to be different. Now it's going to change. Now it's going to happen. I had to keep that um, a secret for a few months. <laughs> it's like, about that. That's hard. Shut up. What? I need to keep this. What? Anyway, I came to the summit and was announced as one of the top five. And there I was in, in a big room full of radically generous women that feel that this network is something else and they want to be part of it. They're attracted to something. Sometimes they don't even know what they're attracted to. But I was announced together with my four other cohort uh, women and I just felt being filled. It's like I'm now being held by a group of women that believe in me. And well, it it sounds dramatic. I always say that it's like it has not just um, made the linker at the moment, a company that still exists, but it literally saved my life. I wasn't in a good state and it literally saved my life. The change from a few guys telling you like, ah, maybe you need to bootstrap a little bit harder because the risk to us is they're like, hey, we believe in you. We're here. What do you need? We want you to, to be successful because this is awesome. I mean, it gave me wings and, and, allowed me to be the leader that I am right now. I am the leader in this field and to lead a movement of kindness is what I often refer to because just a simple acknowledging of each other and being kind to each other, just showing up doesn't cost anything. I could have never done that without the CEO network. So that's kind of the impact in a little summary. Yeah. No, it's so powerful and it definitely brings tears to my eyes when you say it because I feel it too, you know, like we're doing this with each other. So there are women in the network who voted for you, who want this to happen, who feel like they're part of your success. And that's a gift, right? That's a huge gift that we give each other. You're out there cranking and we're wanting to help and we're talking about it and amplifying your stories on social media and talking to our friends about it. It's healing all of us to realize we have everything we need. Mm -hmm. We come together in community. So thank you for sharing that. I'm a little verklempt at the moment. Maybe we can just shift gears for a second. I want to talk a bit about language. This is something you and I talk about a lot. 
So we had this huge sort of discussion slash debate at my dinner table a while ago with someone telling you that the way that you're talking about the linker is selling and you're like, I'm not selling. She says, yes, you are. And you're like, I'm not selling. Why don't we just start there and talk about sales? We had a bit of a breakthrough on this the other day. So talk about how you use language and why it's important to the evolution of what you're doing for transformation. Yes, language is, I think, one of the most important things with what we have influence or we feel powerless. We live in systems. There's a food system, food industry system, there's the medical system, there's a war system, there's an economic system based on capitalism, and the winner takes it all. And all those systems are not really designed for our wellness. And all those systems have language. They try to sell us stuff. And we're buying into that because language is very, it's very powerful. The first awareness, if you want to bring change in the world, is like, oh, this is not going so well for us. Maybe we should change something instead of changing the system, which is, in fact, my reverse design thing of which language is a huge component. If we want to change a system, we have to realize that that system maybe doesn't want to be changed because it's already very successful. It was just not designed for our wellness, but it's designed to make money. If we realize that, for example, healthcare sicker, I always use that, that word because the moment you call the current healthcare system sicker, you realize you can turn around and realize that you do not have healthcare that focuses on wellness. So by naming it the right thing for what it really is, it opens you up and it stops you from having being limited by the construct of focusing on the problematic system. Mm -hmm. It opens you up to say, oh, we don't have health. Oh, now we can play. It's an open play field because there is nothing. Well, let's, let's start something new. And when you talked about sales and what that discussion on the dinner table was, Words do change over time, as we, we, we talked yeah. about, the ethnological yeah. background of words and whatever. So words do change over time. They meant something else 100 years ago than what they mean now. So when I say I don't do sales, it's in the current meaning of the word sales. I'm not trying to push something through somebody's throat with language that is marketed to push something through somebody's throat. With the linker, I always say, like, if I focus on making money, I kill the business right now. If I focus on the things that really matter, that we need to show up for each other, that the linker becomes a vehicle for social change, that we create a new paradigm for healthcare that actually supports wellness, sales will follow. It's not a problem. But it's not pushing sales. It is creating an attraction whereby sales automatically start happening. When you looked up the word sales, it was really interesting. I mean, I don't know if you have that handy, but it was really interesting to see the essence of the word sales, where the stem came from. Do you have that handy? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that it sort of shifts over time, it literally is the gift of a product. It, it was literally like I'm gifting a product to someone else in exchange for this money, but it, it had a totally different realm versus, you know, when we think of sales and I'm, I guess this was probably in your mind, you know, we are like the snake oil salesman the you know used car salesman kind of like vibe around it which is like i'm pushing something on someone i don't care if they need it or not i'm just gonna like get this inventory out of my warehouse kind of thing versus i mean with you you're actually having conversations with people to determine if they are this is going to be a successful device for them to help them right right you're not just trying to you know hit your numbers okay what's your target this month and you're six short you know push 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 
that's not at all. I feel exactly the same way about Shi'a. We are not convincing anyone about anything. If you're attracted to this concept of being radically generous with each other and you want to be in support of women who are working on the world's to-do list to create a better world, come on in. Mm-hmm. And if you want me to tell you the six different things you're going to get out of this, this is just not going to be, it's not going to work. Right. And that's a very different vibe though than what people have done in the past at this current moment in time. Like a hundred years ago, it was much more normal. Right, right now, it's a, it's a very strange thing. So having to create new words, I don't know if you have a great example of this, but I know that we've had a lot of conversations over the last couple of years of how we're communicating in the world and talking about the experience that we create with people that are in our communities. And so there's even just messaging that's kind of push messaging versus a place that comes from open-heartedness, loving kindness, as you mentioned. Yeah, it's a very different way of talking about your product. You know, you're talking about the impact of it versus like the features. Well, we have created a world, a capitalistic business world. There's a world where you're supposed to give the heart of your business in 90 seconds. Like if you give me 90 seconds, I'm not going to show up because who cares? Like if you only have 90 seconds to get the essence of who I am, of what, what we stand for, then I, I lived three and a half years in Afghanistan. And why Afghanistan is so brilliant was such a good match with me because we just slowed down. And just in slowing down, I did not design, but they happened because I was willing to slow down and to get the whole team in what we were trying to do. You can either build schools in Afghanistan and with the money and then just make it happen for the least money and whatever, or you can build the communities or tap into the communities that are there where they need schools and make sure the money is spent in a way that it builds those schools. But it's a completely different approach. It's like you focus on the parents that have children that need to have a school. Of course, those schools are going to be built. And I'm just there because the donor doesn't give money directly to the community. So if I'm willing to be with them and acknowledge that we're all needing to be there for those schools to be built, I don't need to make that project the schools will be built because we already set that whole mindset. But the slowing down is not something that happens in our fast Western world. And it's something that's really, really needed. Well, and I think what you're talking about there too, is your experience in Afghanistan is all about co-creation, which is a thing that we don't see that often, right? You have someone who comes up with something and then they push it out into the world. It's not as often co-created with the community in order to make sure that it works and it sticks and it will be here for a long time. Yeah. And then the end result is that it doesn't work and it doesn't stick because nobody really cared. The money is already made and then move on. Well, that's the whole thing. That's the extractive approach to everything, right? As opposed to the long term. Yeah. Absolutely. I think I'd like to sort of end with one piece here around sisterhood, which is not a word I ever would have used 10 years ago. Uh, I don't know about you if you ever would have used that word. You know, there's a great book called Sisterhood is Powerful, a wonderful feminist political book that I read many, many eons ago. But I, I never experienced myself in a sisterhood. I was very much trained to hang out with the boys and to quote unquote, be successful in the traditional way of the society that we're living in. You have helped heal me, you and all of the 53 other uh, ventures in the CEO network, heal my feminine side, basically, to be in the sisterhood. And can you talk a little bit about what it means to be in this community of the ventures that you're part of in this network who are inventors and solving the world's to-do list? I mean, what does it mean to be in a community of other entrepreneurs who are working on big challenges and, and taking them to market? Well, there's a lot of recognition, obviously. The hardship that I went through, that that is apparently normal, which is ridiculous that it's so hard. 
So to be able to show up for each other, give each other a bigger platform and personal support or links to like, hey, you need to meet so-and-so or can I just hook you up with da-da-da or do you know somebody who can help me do that or all those things that you know that the others have similar people in a the, in the network like that. So you can tap into each other's resources. There's a love and kindness amongst each other. There is a sisterhood, not with all of them, because you don't want to have that many sisters, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> because they come with challenges too. Uh, and, just wait till um, you have 10,000 of them, then it'll be something else. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, you, you, you gravitate towards people like you naturally do, and, and some of them become really dear friends, and others you know of, and then maybe never meet them again outside the events or something. But when I have to say that the connection with you is different because you're this systems thinker who is also has no box. Like people sometimes say to me like, oh, you think so much outside the box. And I'm like, what box? I recognize that there's boxes out there that are constructs that people are stuck in. Yep. But I don't like by the way I was raised or created myself or whatever, I, I don't have boxes. And I don't feel that you have them much either. <laughs> and by meeting you and getting to know you, because I pretty much after I became a top five venture for CEO, pretty much just moved in with you. And I never asked, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> because that saved my life. And being with you and having conversations in the morning where I was not a crazy nut that was like, too much of this and too much of that and you should do this and you should get a focus and all that stuff that goes around that you have to fight on top of how hard it is to start a business but all that stuff that's been put on you you need to do this you need to do that that's their need to do and to be with you and to sort of land in a living room in the mornings with you where we could just go into what does it look like 10 years from now where do we need to go how do we work our way back if that is happening in 10 years? Like, oh my God, and what is the language? Like the richness of our conversations. And I could just fly in whatever, all that few hundred things that are always happening in my head. You never judged and yeah. you flew with me. I could fly with you. I think that the Alinker and maybe as well as CEO are both better organizations because we had those fly sessions in the morning. And that has hugely healed me in the last few years and CEO and on a personal level you as a sister I never thought I had a sister but you know yeah yeah. hello love fest I have a (laughs) hello there (laughs) yeah um well and it's so interesting I I just finding the others I don't know if you know this quote by Timothy Leary I wish all these quotes in the world came from women but anyway I'm going to quote a guy but I'd like to end the podcast reading it uh, because I think it's very important to find the others, find your people. It will save all of us if we find our people. And so here's, here's the quote. Admit it. You aren't like them. You're not even close. You may occasionally dress yourself up as one of them, watch the same mindless television shows as they do, maybe even eat the same fast food sometimes. But it seems that the more you try to fit in, the more you feel like an outsider watching the normal people, quote unquote, as they go about their automatic existences. For every time you say club passwords like, have a nice day, or the weather's awful today, eh? you earn inside to say forbidden things like, tell me something that makes you cry. Or what do you think deja vu is for? Face it, you even want to talk to the girl in the elevator. But what if the girl in the elevator and the balding man who walks past your cubicle at work are thinking the same thing? 
who knows what you might learn from taking a chance on conversation with a stranger. Everyone carries a piece of the puzzle. Nobody comes into your life by mere coincidence. Trust your instincts. Do the unexpected. Find the others. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And that's something that, so we're having this whole platform of crowdfunding campaigns at the moment. People that have a, a successful crowdfunding campaign, they start helping the others. I'm becoming friends with a few of those people. And they're saying, yesterday, Lee said to me, he said, I had a smile on my face when I was helping others to build their campaign. And my wife said, it's not about helping the others. It's about that you found your tribe. Mm. And he's so involved and he's not the only one. And that become, and it's about finding the others that get it where you are, that you can slow down with because they're not judging and they get it. Well, so in many ways, I mean, the pattern underneath this really does feel like, what is it that you are meant to birth into the world and do it in a community of other people? Because uh, there's this amazing Thai quote that I love as well, which is someone out there needs you. Mm -hmm. Live your life so that they can find you. Mm -hmm. I just love that. Whatever that thing is that's that burning desire is inside of you, please bring it forth because there are people waiting for you to be in community with that. Yes, absolutely. Mm, so on lovely. that note, thank you so, so much for being with us today. Thank you for sharing your story. And you. uh, how can people find you in the world? Well, my phone number is now, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I can give that though. Like people do phone me. All I time. know you're like nuts that way. Okay. My website is thealinker.com, yeah. T-H-E-A-L-I-N-K-E-R.com. And on Facebook, I'm Barbara A-Link 5, I believe, or something. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Greatly appreciate your time. Wonderful. Thank you, Vicky. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the CEO.world podcast. If this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. If you'd like more information about CEO, please visit us at CEO.world. That's S-H-E-E-O dot world.